Can you just describe for me what an ant bridge looks like? It really just looks like a jumble of limbs. Ants are really leggy. <laughs> you know, they have, they have long legs. They also have long antennae. They're actually grasping each other's legs and they can even kind of hold hands in a sense. But yeah, an ant bridge just, if you really squint and let your eyes kind of glaze over, it looks like a surface. You know, it looks like a path. But it's, it's a jumble of ants. A while back, I was poking around the internet looking for cool bridges. You know, as you do. And I came across this time-lapse video that I just couldn't stop watching. It was of ants. Army ants, specifically building bridges out of their own bodies. It all happens really fast. There's a bunch of ants trying to get across a gap between point A and point B. And they start piling onto each other, flailing and grabbing onto each other's legs until they reach the other side. I watched this video, and then another, and another. It turns out there's a bunch of ongoing research about these ants and how they do this, how they build bridges out of themselves. So I wanted to know, what do scientists know about these living, breathing structures? What motivates these ants to build them? And at the risk of getting way too metaphorical about the whole thing, what can ant bridges teach us about ourselves? I'm Rebecca Seidel, and this is Abridged. By design, bridges aren't really destinations. We cross them to get from one point to another. But here on Abridged, we're reconsidering that idea. Within the flow of traffic and trains and people and ants, we're going to go to these bridges and we're going to stop and listen. Episode 2, Ant Bridges. To get myself familiar with how ant bridges work, I spoke with two researchers who've been studying this for years. Helen? So my name is Helen McCreary, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher. And Albert? My name is Albert Cow. I'm an assistant professor in the biology department at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. When I spoke with them last year, Helen and Albert were working in a lab together, studying collective behavior basically looking at how groups of simple individuals can accomplish really challenging tasks when they band together. Both of them say that collective behavior is everywhere, if you know where to look. You see it inside our bodies in the way our cells interact with each other. You see it in schools of fish and flocks of birds. And of course, in army ants. Groups of ants do things that are way more impressive than what an individual ant can do. They build these really amazing, huge, complex nests that have, you know, chambers for different purposes. And they coordinate foraging across thousands or hundreds of thousands of individuals. These individual ants tend to be pretty dumb, one might say. But then by working together through these simple interactions, they can create pretty beautiful, what we call emergent structures. That's the big question that drives me is, how does that happen? 
Army ant colonies are massive. They can have hundreds of thousands of ants. And within their colonies, the ants have really specific roles. And none of them is the leader. There's the queen, who's responsible for laying all the eggs. And then there are foragers, who find all the food. Plus, there are the soldier ants, who protect the colony. On their own, the ants aren't that big. But together, they're a force to be reckoned with. These ants, they eat voraciously. They're really good hunters. They actually, the particular species I study, specialize in eating other ants. And so they will eat most of the food that's available in the region that they are. They really will eat everything. A swarm of army ants can kill thousands upon thousands of prey animals in a day, from insects to small mammals. And this, this kind of huge appetite means two things. They have to move their whole colony every day. And it means that they have these huge kind of foraging highways. So during the day, they are just thousands of ants going back and forth, and they're walking out to find food, and then they're going to bring it back to their nest. And they also have highways with really heavy traffic at night while they're literally just moving from one place to the other place. And these army ants just swarm their environment every day, totally devastating everything in its path. One other thing to keep in mind about these army ants, they're essentially blind. So in order to construct these highways across hundreds of meters of the rainforest floor, they lay what are called pheromone trails, basically these invisible chemical paths that allow them to keep track of each other. And then towards the end of those highways, you would see essentially like fanning out, you know, smaller and smaller network of traffic on these other smaller roads. So the ends of these highways are ants just sort of exploring, looking for prey. And this is where the bridges come in, along these smaller roads. So on the foraging pads, the ants have to traverse really complicated terrain. If you imagine like a jungle, there's leaves and branches and pits that these ants have to form trails on. And so the ants have evolved a way of building bridges with their own bodies that can shortcut their trails in this complicated terrain. In reality, you have a lot of ants who are trying to cross a bridge that doesn't exist. And so there's just a pileup, you know, a big blob of ants that keeps getting bigger. And eventually that blob is so big that it kind of reaches the other side. Then you have this blob in between whatever the two anchor points are. And so that's enough of a bridge for, for the ants. The bridges can be, you know, one ant big, or it can be many hundreds of ants big. And it can also be really dynamic. So depending on the traffic flow over the bridge, or if the environmental feature that it's hooked onto moves, the bridge can dynamically uh, shrink or grow or also move in space. Seeing this living structure, this living architecture building in front of your eyes is, is really shocking. Researchers like Albert and Helen have tons of questions about these ant bridges. And a lot of their questions, they come down to cause and effect. For instance, what makes an ant decide to join a bridge in the first place? How long will an ant stay in a bridge before it decides it's time to leave? And how do the ants adjust when a bridge starts falling apart? Basically, what rules are they following? 
in everything I study, it's like they build these bridges. There's no foreman. There's no blueprint. There's no like, this is what it's going to look like. I can't ask the ants, like, what instructions are you following? What are your rules? Like, what do you know even? I can do some experiments to try to guess at that, but I, I can't really know. So one thing I do is I'll write a computer program that simulates a group of ants. And I'll say, you know, okay, if you have like 100 ants, these are the rules that you're following in this computer program. I'll run the simulation a bunch of times and see what happens. And that'll tell me like if these simple rules will actually lead to the complex behavior that I that I see in the real ants. And that, that's sort of how we can kind of gradually get closer to understanding what are the ants really doing? What are they really paying attention to? And what rules are they following? Helen got to test out these simulations in real life. She went to Panama to study these army ants in the rainforest. This is March 22nd, 2016. This is the colony on AVA, uh, close to the intersection with ZTEC. I would start each day by looking for ants, and I would just be hiking around the rainforest, just scanning constantly for these highways, um, you know, these long foraging trails. And you know, some days I didn't find them at all. Because remember, these army ants are constantly on the move. But when she did find a colony, she had this whole apparatus that she'd set up. She had two small 3D-printed platforms, and she'd put each of them on the ground, right near each other. One of them had a beam that she could move in and out. So basically, I could have these two platforms that were separated, but I could move a beam so that they were connected. Essentially, an ant bridging machine. Slowly but surely, Helen would guide the ants to start walking onto her platforms, using twigs and other materials from the forest floor. To convince the ants to go where she wanted them to go, she would choose things that the ants had already walked on, things where they had already laid those pheromone trails. So you kind of have to hold their hand a little bit <laughs> to get to where there's like, you've reestablished their foraging trail. So the whole thing is maybe, you know, a foot and a half long, and they're, they're going up one, walking across, going down on the other side. Then after that, I would set up a couple cameras. This is the first trial. The bridge is currently at 6.2. Would hit record and then start moving that beam. So then suddenly the ants are walking across, but they find that there's a gap now. And whoops, the gap just got bigger. So once the gap is big enough, you'll see ants not being able to cross. And then an ant is walking on that ant. And maybe that ant says, okay, maybe it's time to make a bridge. One. Every time I change the size of the gap, I would call out, you know, how many millimeters the current gap is. So you'll, every 30 seconds, it says like 26, 27. So there's that commentary. Two. Three. Four. Millimeter by millimeter, Helen watched as the ants piled their bodies over one another to close up the gap. When I first started doing this experiment, it was just like, oh my God, that's so cool. What? Even though I knew it was going to happen, you know, it's, it's, there's very little that can really prepare you for seeing ants. Like, really? Really? These ants are doing this? But just seeing the ants build the bridges, that was just the beginning. They had to collect data. A lot of data. In order to actually draw 
real conclusions about what's causing individual ants to decide to join the bridge or decide to leave the bridge. We just need a lot of instances of that happening. We have to have enough trials, enough experiments to be able to say it wasn't just kind of a fluke. It wasn't random chance. A lot of things had to go right for these ants to build their bridges, which meant that a lot of things could also go wrong. There was rain, which would send the ants packing. There were howler monkeys. I did have monkeys uh, poop on my apparatus one day, so (laughs) yeah. (laughs) But eventually, they got what they needed. Helen and her team took their videos home and extracted data from them, which was a really time-consuming process. I had undergraduate helpers who were watching these bridges, watching these videos extremely painstakingly to note the exact times that ants joined the bridge and left the bridge so that we could know like how many ants are in the bridge. And that process of just getting the data from the videos took years. Years. And over those years, researchers like Helen and Albert have gotten closer to understanding what the ants are doing in these bridges and why. Like, they generally know when an ant is more likely to stay in a bridge instead of abandoning it. If they're in a bridge and they're being walked on more, they're less likely to leave the bridge. Also, if they've been in the bridge for longer, they're also less likely to leave the bridge. So, if an ant is part of a bridge and is being walked on a lot, chances are it'll stick around for a while. Albert told me why they think this is. An ant in a bridge can sense the amount of traffic on the bridge. So it can literally sense how many ants are walking over it. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that gives it an interesting clue about how useful the bridge is. And so if there's lots of ants walking over it, it can infer that it's being helpful, that its friends are walking on it and it's, it's serving some purpose. And so it'll stay in the bridge for longer. But if ants stop walking over it, then it's more likely to detach from the bridge. So traffic flow is one major thing that it senses and reacts to when it's deciding whether to join a bridge or leave a bridge. Traffic flow is really key, given that the ants' main mission here is delivering food as fast as they can. These colonies grow really rapidly and their size can be in the hundreds of thousands. And so they really are time constrained and are trying to bring back as much prey as possible. And so there's that cost-benefit analysis of Is it better for me to carry prey or is it better for me to be in the bridge? And so the longer your bridge, the more workers you're taking away from the task of actually carrying prey back to the colony. So there are a lot of factors at work. But overall, it seems like the ants can really sense where they can be the most useful. And when a bridge is working, they stick with it. Ants seem to join bridges that are performing really well instead of poorly. One explanation is maybe they're like, okay, there's lots of potential paths we could take in the forest. This one's working, so we're going to invest in it. When the bridge kind of droops because it's bigger than it needs to be, that's when you see ants starting to leave. Researchers have also studied what happens when a bridge is disturbed. Like if the branches on either side of it move. Or even if the whole bridge falls apart. They are often able to recover from what appear to be really catastrophic failures, um, where the whole bridge is just torn apart. But they also can sort of gradually adjust to the leaf that they're attached to moving a little bit. The bridges are extremely flexible and and they make changes as needed. And um, that's one of the things that's really interesting about them to me. 
we think of bridges as usually static objects that link from one place to another place. But here, to see something that's growing and dynamic and responsive and adaptive is really awesome to see. Hearing about how these army ants construct their bridges, I couldn't help but think about human bridges and just how different they are from what the ants are building. The ant bridges morph by the second, adapting to every little change. They grow and shrink, and they eventually disappear, while human bridges are built to withstand centuries. The way we humans design bridges is we plan ahead and we think like, what is this bridge going to need to do? Let me make sure it will like work the first time. And yeah, the ants are just like, well, we'll just throw a bunch of ants at it and see what happens. You know, there's a lot of randomness in ant behavior in general. Yeah, I think we could learn something about about that and randomness, maybe. To be clear, human bridges, they have their own kind of movement, too. They expand and contract with temperature changes, and they sway in the wind. All of that is by meticulous design. To be completely static and rigid is often a very dangerous strategy, and so you have to be... You have to be accommodating to environmental pressures like wind or rain or earthquakes, and you have to build that into your design principles in order to resist them. I feel like that's a good philosophy in general, that being yeah. too static is is bad. Yeah, it's a life mantra. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that. At the end of the trials, each experiment ended by me closing up that gap gradually, but closing it up so that I could watch as the bridge disassembled, because that's one of the things I'm studying. So at the very end, occasionally, there would be an ant or maybe two ants that just were still in bridge mode, even though they didn't need, a bridge wasn't necessary anymore. Like I was nudging them. I was, I was sort of pushing on them with the beam and I was totally surprised by what happened in that case. What I see watching those videos is an ant gets a little bit squished and starts flailing, it looks like. And within seconds, all the other ants come rushing and, and start trying to, like, pull this ant out. It's a little rescue. For Helen, watching these little ant rescue missions, it all comes back to one thing her team noticed about the ants and their living, breathing bridges. Ants that have been in a bridge for a very long time are just really stuck in bridge mode. And they, it maybe just takes them a while to decide, okay, I'm ready to move on now. So I don't know about you all, but I've definitely been stuck in bridge mode before. It can be hard to recognize when something isn't working anymore, and it's time to do something else. And on the flip side, it can also be hard to recognize when you need a support system, when maybe it's time to join a bridge of your own. These army ants, they don't need to teach us anything. They very much have their own agenda. But watching them build bridges out of themselves and watching those bridges shapeshift by the second 
it's a tiny reminder to go with the flow. I'm Rebecca Seidel, and remember, some of the most impressive bridges of all might be too small for you to walk on. Abridged is written, produced, sound design, and mixed by me. The executive producers are Ian Enright and Megan Nadolsky at Goat Rodeo. I'm very grateful to today's guests, Helen McCreary and Albert Cow. They have done so much amazing research on collective behavior. Today, we really only scratched the surface. I'll link to some of their work in the show notes. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions, with additional music from me. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Or just tell a friend. It would really mean a lot. To learn more about Abridged, or to share a bridge story of your own, visit abridged.xyz. Or you can find me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at BeccaHope24. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned for more episodes soon. <laughs>